Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. The world couldn't get enough of Dr. Mary Walker during her lifetime, said one newspaper. Her strange adventures, thrilling experiences, important services, and marvelous achievements exceed anything that modern romance or fiction has produced. She has been one of the greatest benefactors of her sex and of the human race. And then her rivals, both in medicine and the suffrage movement, began to erase her from history. The end. Let's talk about Dr. Mary Walker. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1855, Alexander Romanov became Tsar Alexander II of Russia. Florence Nightingale was starting to set up her nursing facilities in Turkey, and Mary Seacole was setting up her British hotel to assist troops near the front lines, both in the Crimean War. U.S. Congress approved $30,000 to launch a program testing the usefulness of camels to the Army. The experiment produced mixed results and ended with the sale of the Camel Corps nine years later. Isaac Singer patented his improvements of a sewing machine. Circus and fair staple, the steam-powered musical instrument the Calliope was also patented. Disposable razor dealer King Gillette and robber baron turned philanthropist Andrew Mellon were both born. Charlotte Bronte died. And in 1855, Miss Mary Walker became Dr. Mary Walker and embarked on an uphill battle to practice medicine and change minds. Mary Edwards Walker was born on November 26, 1832, in Oswego, New York, the fifth of the six surviving children of Alva and Vesta Walker. Both of Mary's parents were from old New England stock. Not much is really known about Mama Vesta. We know that she was born in 1801 in a town named Greenwich, Massachusetts. And where that town is now, it's underwater. There's a man-made reservoir. So the town disappeared to give water to people. This was also the same town where Papa Alva grew up. Mama's family was extremely progressive for its time. Its views on the role of women, religion, and abolition were very radical. Papa could trace his family back all the way to the OG Plymouth Company, and his work as a carpenter had taken him from his young manhood all over the young United States. Travel broadens the mind, so they say, on the foundation of that exposure to the progressive movements of the North and his marrying the woman he did, he became one of the most forward-thinking papas I think we have ever encountered on this podcast. Uh, I agree. The family had moved from Syracuse to a farmstead in Oswego, New York, to start a new way of life in an area of the country more in line with their progressive ideals. There were lots of reforms percolating in this area. We've talked about them before. Women's rights, transcendentalism, my favorite, (laughs) abolition. The Walker Farm would actually serve as a stop on the Underground Railroad during Mary's entire childhood. The Walker children came over the course of about 12 years, kind of perfectly stair-stepped every two years. And because Mama and Papa were extraordinarily progressive and free-thinking, they named their children some pretty clever names. Okay, the first one was named Vesta, which is after Mama. But the second one, Aurora Borealis, 
The third one is named Luna. And the fourth one is Cynthia, which now, pretty common name. Back then, not so much. And then they ran out of inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they went to the family, which is pretty traditional. When Mary Edwards Walker was born, um, she's named after her aunt on her mother's side. I mean, that's nice. And a couple of years later, the only son was born, and they named him Alva Jr. That was disappointing. After putting his carpentry skills to work, building a house and barn, Papa's very next task was to build and staff the town's very first schoolhouse. Education, he thought, was the key to self-development. As if he didn't have enough to handle, Papa started studying medical books in the evening and was so competent and knowledgeable that he began to be relied upon in that capacity within driving distance of town. People called him Dr. Walker. And that seems a little surprising, but at the time, that was a very accepted way to be a doctor. Licensing and standardization had not yet kind of risen to the top. Mm -hmm. You know, in this community of progressive, free-thinking people, I wouldn't imagine anything else but a doctor like Alva Walker was. God, I love his name so much. When I first heard it, I thought it was a woman's name. It's A-L-V-A-H. I don't know. I loved his name. I might name a dog that. Or a fish, since I don't it's have any dogs. A fish. <laughs> well, yeah, we have heard that name before because of Alva Vanderbilt. Oh, yeah, that is. So that's probably why you thought that was a woman's name. Yes, that's exactly why. At home on the farm, Mary and her four older sisters, including Aurora and Luna, <laughs> um, were vital workers on the family farm. Due to their active lifestyle, Papa and I assume Mama we don't know, prohibited their daughters from wearing restrictive corsets. Common sense, you might say, um, maybe, but yet another radical viewpoint at the time. Now, I will tell you, as someone who has worn historical garments, corsets properly fitted aren't necessarily painful or even, you know, harmful to you. But the fashion during these decades for tight corsets, it was called tight lacing, really tight, which deformed the body, compressed the internal organs, decreased your lung capacity, reduced flexibility, restricted movement. Like Papa wanted none of this Mm -mm. for his daughters, you know, whose bodies were to be as free to move as their minds were to be free to grow. So progressive. These lady persons... I'm saying this, you know, specific to this era, even wore trousers at home and while they were out on the fields at work. Years later, Laura Ingalls, if you remember, did help Pa with the hang, but she wore a dress the whole time. Right. So even the Victorians weren't this progressive about working in the fields, you know. Well, it just made sense, you know, to have skirts just a little bit shorter than convention, to have everything unconventional made sense. Mary, of course, went to Papa's school and then off to a girls' boarding school for high school along with her sisters. And there was excitement in the neighborhood right as she graduated. Over in Seneca Falls, the Seneca Falls Convention was happening. It was filling the tea time conversation, if not the newspapers. How exciting, how optimistic, what a great time to hold progressive views, even despite formidable opposition with so much change Mm -hmm. happening in the neighborhood. And Seneca Falls isn't that far away from Oswego. It's maybe 60 miles south down the road. So all this cool stuff is happening right in their backyard. 
Seneca Falls, for those of you who may not have listened to our Elizabeth Cady Stanton episode, was the very first women's rights convention. It was held in Seneca Falls, New York. There was about 300 people, mostly women, but there were men there, too. And the big thing that happened was the reading of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's document called Declaration of Sentiments. It claimed that women's equality as citizens of the United States have equal rights to men. Now, what is the usual path for educated young ladies of the past? Say it with me. Mary became a teacher. But much like her papa, she spent her evenings reading medical books. The medical profession was slowly and creakily turning from papa's style of self-taught, you know, side gig medicine to lectures, study, licensing, and degrees. And their numbers were few. I will tell you, but women were beginning to officially study medicine all over the Northeast in particular. A nearby college graduated its very first female doctor when Mary was only 17, one Elizabeth Blackwell. Women were applying to medical schools, but they weren't necessarily being accepted. When Elizabeth Blackwell applied to Geneva Medical College, it was received by the people at the school And they thought it was a joke. They handed it to a group of students saying, should we enroll this person? And the students just thought it was a prank from a college. And they said, sure, yeah, let's enroll her. And Elizabeth Blackwell showed up very excited to learn and become a doctor. And the people supported her. The other students supported her. Now, when she graduated, they stopped admitting women for a while. But she got through. She was the first woman to get her medical degree in the United States. And I just want to add, she's not the only one going through. She just happened to be the first right. one graduated. So um, so there are women peppered throughout the Northeast, slowly, you know, ice breaking for the people that will come after them. Even her sister, Elizabeth Blackwell's sister, also graduated from medical school. Emily, she doesn't get a lot of talk because she wasn't first. Mary had her sights set on medical school. So she was teaching and squirreling away as much money as she could to afford it. When it came time for her to apply to schools, she got a lot of no's. But the yes that she got was actually very close to where she lived, Syracuse Medical College. This school was very progressive. Again, this is this area. They were actually admitting women. Mary was just the fourth, but they weren't saying no. In addition to being progressive and enrolling women, this school, yes, they graduated licensed MDs, but they were very different than other schools in that they were teaching things that Papa was probably using in his home medical practice. You know, they were teaching herbal remedies and good hygiene. They talked about how diets affect our health, how water is very important, not only in cleanliness, but in consumption. It's important for the body. This was not traditional medicine the way it was being taught. Yes, they taught them traditional medicine, but the accent was really on these other alternative type medicines. You know, at the time, mercury was thought to be this wonder drug, and really it was killing people, where these guys come in and they just clean a wound instead of putting, you know, chemicals on it. Do you remember, and here's the thing, we have done so many shows that I can't remember if I actually said this in a show <laughs> or if it was one of those clamors. We oh, kind of miss them. Mm-hmm. There used to be this service where you could do 18 second podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yes, you heard that 18 seconds. 
And during one of them, I talked about Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup, which for decades, I mean decades, was a trusted name around the house, like Pepto-Bismol, mm-hmm. like a mild, always reach for, like, oh, thank goodness it's here type of remedy. Mm-hmm. Just a regular part of the pharmacopoeia of any responsible mother or father. Turns out it's so full of morphine yeah. that it killed children for decades and was only banned in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So remedies that doctors thought could be prescribed and given freely ended up being very, very toxic. And I sort of wonder if the denizens of Syracuse Medical College, with their emphasis on washing one's hands, washing one's wound, like that might be accidentally why they had better outcomes. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think you did talk about, we talked about it in the Lydia Pinkham episode. Yeah, because we talked about that. We really got on the doctors on that one. Yeah, because Lydia Pinkham, if you haven't heard that one yet, said that the best remedy for almost any illness is to listen carefully for the wheels of the doctor's carriage to crunch on the gravel of your drive and immediately hide (laughs) under the bed. Wait for him to leave. Get back in bed. (laughs) So you see the medical community was sort of divided. And you would almost say that the hygienic... Syracuse people were the traditionalists because they were incorporating sort of common sense, folk wisdom, Mm -hmm. the wisdom of midwives. You know, they're really the traditionalists, but the other medical professionals are, you know, that's not professional. That's not scientific. That's not how we do. And there was kind of a big schism. Mm. Now, I don't know if it's because we've learned so much in the years since, but medical school at the time for Mary was three 13-week terms. Yeah, an intense year-long course. Oh, medical students of today, are you about ready to kill? (laughs) Oh, wait till you hear this part. So it's three 13-week terms, $55 a term, $1.50 a week extra room and board, which comes out to about $224 in 1850s. But in 2020 dollars, it's only like $6,700. I mean, you can't even buy a year at a state school for that. Trust me, I know. (laughs) And get this, internship with actual patients under a supervising doctor was an optional extra. And I'm going to say that again. (laughs) You can graduate from medical school never having seen an actual patient. Yes, that's what I'm saying about (laughs) medical school. Um, She also, she took advantage of that, by the way, and she stayed longer than required to take some specialty courses and formed, like a nerd, i.e. like myself or maybe Hermione Granger, um, (laughs) formed an elite group to go deeper into different subjects, present papers to each other, and have discussions. And that was her initiative to start that club. Coincidentally, I think most of the people in that club were the highest ranked students in the class. During her time in medical school, Mary began to adopt the rational dress costume for practical reasons. What was this, you might ask? A short skirt, still way below the knees, with loose fitting trousers underneath to hide the ankles. <laughs> Shocking. You and I would think she's still wearing 20 pounds too many clothes. Right. I'm telling you. But at the time, this costume made everyone wobble, even other female medical students. I mean, I appreciate the practicality, Mary, but maybe we should just knock down one barrier at a time. I cannot wait for you to see 
these pictures of her, quote, dressed in men's clothes. Mm -hmm. And I assure you, nobody would be confused. Right. Nobody. No, no, not at all. Now, she wasn't the only person that was doing this. Libby Miller, who was a suffragist, started wearing pantaloons years before. It was copied by her cousin, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and also by Amelia Jenks Bloomer, who fortunately was writing a newspaper called The Lily, and she was able to use that platform to talk about this abbreviated dress and how it was practical, and it was kind of a symbol for the suffrage movement. So we hear about those names, but the name that I had never heard about before was New Harmony, Back in 1824, eight years before Mary was even born, there was an intentional utopian community in Indiana called New Harmony and inspired possibly by the indigenous women's outfits. They also created a short dress to about the knees with pants underneath it. One abolitionist who saw it loved it because it took away the, quote, gigaws and trinkets, ribbons and laces. Like, it just streamlined the whole operation. Well, 1853 fashion was a lot. There was a teeny tiny waist and up to seven petticoats. This was before hoops came in. And people loved when hoops came in because it lightened. I mean, you no longer had to have all of these actual pieces of cloth holding your dress out. There was now a wire framework. Nope, this was before then. You're wearing pounds and pounds of extra clothing. And not only that, so your lower half is really heavy and bogged down. And for evening, the fashion was to have functionally a cold shoulder dress. For nighttime, even in the winter, so impractical. Mary just wasn't having it. She didn't care. Like, say what you will. This is hygienic. I can handle my business and I'm not dragging it over this floor. I'm not Mm -hmm. changing. It's fine. And rational dress became a vital and famous part of her life from now on, for better or for worse. In the spring of 1855, age 22, Mary Walker officially became Dr. Mary Walker. So Dr. Walker's first attempt at private practice unfortunately failed. Your first attempt at anything generally fails. It's fine. Back home, analyzing what went wrong, she was invited by a fellow graduate, a member of the study club named Albert Miller, who invited her to start a practice with him in the town of Rome, New York. And soon they were partnered in more than business. She and Albert were married that fall, which seems a little precipitous, but they've known each other all through college. True. During her wedding, she did something that was medium radical. She did not promise to obey her husband. Now, we mentioned Laura Ingalls Wilder a little earlier. Laura Ingalls Wilder did the same thing 30 years later than this. Remember what Almanzo said when she said, I couldn't promise to obey anyone against my better judgment? He had a tone of surprise. Wait, are you for women's rights like my sister Eliza? Like, Almanzo, don't make me bring the taser back in time to you, too. <laughs> I 
had not even remembered that until I flipped back to make sure that what I was remembering was true. So not promising to obey your husband during your wedding was deeply associated with women's rights. Other suffragists had done the same, Lucy Stone also. So it was kind of around the Northeast, kind of circulating around that we're not going to promise to obey. Mary Walker herself said of this practice, how barbarous, the very idea of one equal promising to be a slave to another instead of both entering life's great drama as intelligent, equal partners, our promises were such as denoted two intelligent beings instead of one intelligent and one chattel. Taking the obey out was not the only non-traditional thing she did. Of course, she wore pants underneath her wedding dress. She also had the preacher cut out the whole God has joined us together clause. She was still Dr. Walker, but she did, for convention's sake, sometimes use his last name, only she hyphenated it with hers, and she was Dr. Miller Walker. And not Dr. Walker Miller. (laughs) And he didn't do the same. (laughs) No. No. What she said about names was, quote, A woman's name is dear to her as a man's is to him, and custom ought and will prevail where each will keep their own names when they marry and allow children at a certain age to decide which name they prefer. So that's really radical for the time. They set up side by side but separate premises for their medical work, and Dr. Walker began writing articles for the progressive magazine called the Sybil. I was so tickled when I saw that it was called The Sybil, which is actually like a um, prophetess, mm-hmm. like a prognosticator, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking how funny it was that Sybil was the one in Downton Abbey that was the first adopter of rational dress. Oh. So um, the magazine was called The Sybil that she wrote for, and Sybil was the advanced model of daughter in Downton Abbey. I thought that was great. That is. I'm sure that was intentional. Perhaps, because in the Sybil, what she wrote about was dress reform, voting, equality of opportunity, meaning, and I'm going to quote one of her articles here, every child, whether son or daughter, should be given practical education in some business in which they can support themselves. So her articles were just full of the importance of independence and self-determination, no matter if you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. Everybody deserves to be armed for the battle, I guess Mm -hmm. is all she's saying. Yeah. It was also how she grew up. I mean, this was just like bloggers of today writing about their personal experiences as the way things should be. That's what she's talking about. Soon, Dr. Walker, unfortunately, had reason to focus on yet another platform of the women's movement, that of divorce. They both knew going into the marriage that they were both unconventional, free-thinking, progressive people. Albert took it an extra step, and he was into free love. And he thought that it was okay for him to step outside the bounds of marriage. Mary did not agree. He had another little family, even. And all he told her when the news came out was, well, I give you permission to get a friend, too. Yeah. And, you know, most women of this time would be financially trapped Mm -hmm. and honestly, societally trapped. That would be that. They would have no options. Mm -hmm. But Mary had options. She could support herself and she knew about divorce and did not have 
any problems filing for it. She later wrote about divorce. To be deprived of a divorce is like being shut up in a prison because someone attempted to kill you. Unfortunately, it takes a very long time for them to actually get divorced. So they were married almost about 10 years legally. In New York, they purposely tried to complicate things. And there was functionally a five-year waiting period between the filing of a divorce and the finality of a divorce. Now, ah, irritating. She heard that there was another state that had a much shorter period of waiting if you had six months of residency. And so immediately off she went to take up residency in Iowa to wait out her term. But alas, there was a clause she hadn't read where it didn't really matter if, you know, if you were a resident of New York, you had to abide by their laws, et cetera. So she kind of wasted the whole six months and went back. In the background of this next part of her life, five years had gone by. They had been separated. They had not been living together. And Albert used that as a pretense to refile. Well, how can we know? How can we know what's really happening? I think we should try again. Let's refile. So it ended up being 10 years (laughs) during the waiting period. And ultimately, the whole entire thing lasted somewhere between 10 and 13 years before she could get 100% free of him and his legal entanglements. And that's nonsense. And it infuriated her. And so for the rest of her life, this was definitely going to be a pillar of the women's movement that she would speak strongly about is the, the right to a divorce, the right to tell everyone that this was not working for you right. and you needed to get away. She said, quote, it is just as horrible to get out of matrimonial trouble legally as to be freed from any other wrong. If it's right to be legally married, it's right to be legally divorced. She'd had so many problems that it didn't make sense to her. Well, and think about this. They didn't have children, Mm -hmm. but Dr. Walker could certainly imagine another situation where a woman would have children. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age, typically the children would go with the father. And so imagine a woman being separated from her children for five or 10, or in this case, 13 years before she could have them back in the house, how much she would have missed, how far apart from her they would have grown. The law is an a-hole. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) And, And is ridiculous. And it is against women and children. Talk about infuriating. Mm -hmm. Well, she wasn't against marriage. She was just against it for her going forward. So, Well, I think once burned, I mean, like, why step into a thing you can't get out of? Oh, no kidding. No kidding. No, I agree. But 10,000%. Yeah. Dr. Walker moved her practice across the street. You know, let's, let's not share a wall anymore. And tried to continue her medical work, even doing exhausting gig work on the side, um, house calls, emergency medicine, nighttime delivery, being on call, traveling in her carriage alone all over hither and yon. But the stigma of the impending divorce was just too much for people. It was just too much for people and her practice had to be closed. She was at a crossroads.
So the war had begun. The one we know, of course, as the Civil War, the war between the states. And Dr. Walker knew she had to make a fundamental change in her life. This seemed like a just cause to her. And I would like to just I want to tell you something I've never heard anyone say before as their motivation for wanting to go to war. Get this. And I quote Dr. Walker herself. The interests of the cruelly abused colored women have the strongest claim on my duty. That's so unusual. I have never heard anyone focus in that way before. Mm -mm. No, nope. Well, she's very unusual. I mean, we've already established that, I think. She decided to go in person to Washington, D.C. to offer her services as a military surgeon. Dr. Walker reported for duty as far as she was concerned at the U.S. Army Medical Department. She had letters of recommendation from other physicians describing her skills, her excellent character. She assumed she would get in. She was denied admittance. The reason they said was because she had gone to a non-traditional medical school. But really, the reason was obvious. She was a woman. Yeah, she was also rejected immediately by the War Department, who looked up and saw a tiny, cute lady person in super weird clothes and pointed at the door. No, get out. Get out. So she did. And she's like, what now? What now? What now? Well, she went and volunteered at a temporary hospital, tending to seriously wounded men. The man that ran this hospital had replaced a man who literally worked himself to death. That's how overworked he was. That's how little sleep he got. The man had a heart attack and died on the job. And so when this woman came in, I don't care about the the niceties of my assistant's dress. Like his opinions about it are whatever. Can you keep me and everyone else here alive? You're hired. The pay is nothing. She was cheerful. She was competent. Patients adored her, adored her. For a while, it was just the two of them, Dr. Green and Dr. Walker, handling their business, juggling, juggling, and stressing out, but keeping it all under control. Some more doctors ultimately were assigned to this hospital, and Dr. Walker had to kind of use some subterfuge. These new doctors graduated from the traditional type of medical school were amputation happy, as far as she was concerned. Um... Many cases came in that she thought with a little more attention could have been saved, and she decided she was going to forestall the unnecessary ones whenever she could. And of course, no one would listen to her. And so what she would do is talk to the patient when all the other doctors were gone and said, look, I don't think you need this amputation. I can't stop them, but you can. You're the patient, and here's all you need to do. When they tell you your leg needs to be cut off, you start swearing. Use every swear word that your mother told you never to use. That would send you straight to hell. And you swear to those doctors that the second you're better, you're going to come back here with a gun and kill every one of them. Right. <laughs> but you didn't hear this from me. I'm like, girl, dang. I know. <laughs> she saved a lot of legs. I'm not sure it was always warranted. And I'm sure she made some mistakes. And, um, and that's how it is. But that's how out of the box she was willing to think to save what she thought were unnecessary mutilations mm -hmm. is what she saw them as. Now, Dr. Green, her OG mentor, actually offered to pay her part of his own salary, but he was married and he had a family to provide for, small children. And he kept writing beseeching letters to his superiors, pleading to please compensate this woman. She's so valuable. No dice. 
she would not let him spare his salary. She She's like, no, please don't. Please don't rob yourself. I would like official recognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she felt like she was just, you know, doing her time to show what she could do. And eventually they'd wise up and give her the commission. Simple as that. Ha, not exactly. They did want her to be a nurse because the women were coming into Washington and out into the field to be nurses. Clara Barton was training them. And even up in New York, Drs. Blackwell, both of the Blackwell sisters, were training nurses. So there were rules for women, but it wasn't the role that Mary was trained in. Not anything against nurses, but that's not her path. Well, and she felt like she had some... I don't even know what it is. Like she studied with the same men. And so she wanted the same opportunities Mm -hmm. that she had trained for. Right. Which is common sense, you know, and not many people were really fighting for that. But this state of volunteerism really couldn't last forever. You can only exist for a certain amount of time on the savings. And she had to return home to kind of recalibrate, to think about what she's going to do. One of the things she thought maybe would help her case was getting more training. She went to New York and went to the Hygieia Therapeutic College. Like Syracuse, it was very unconventional. And the focus was on newly discovered natural cures and the importance of hygienic conditions. They used a whole lot of water in this school. She thought if she got a certificate from this school that it would just up her credentials. It didn't. It's not how we do things here. How many times must she have heard that or versions of it? Oh, we don't do it that way here. You know, when she's asking for her commission, even, you know, or offering suggestions. Yep. Well, after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, things kind of heated up on the battlefront. And she returned, this time, to the theater of war. The theater, not the theater you want to take it to. I'm telling you that right now. It was quite horrible. She treated men with sometimes nothing but water. Luckily, she'd had that training. And strips of fabric torn from her own personal nightgown. She once traded her own boots off her own personal feet to a civilian who had been hoarding some cornmeal to feed some patients of hers who hadn't had any food for a week. And those patients repaid her by stealing a pig from this poor pair of sisters who had had the pig hidden in the house. And while Dr. Walker appreciated the sentiment, she's like, boys, you cannot be taking two women's last food that they have for their whole winter. Right. Bring it back. And instead, they made her a medal. Uh, of appreciation. And she wore that medal pretty much for the rest of her life as a little collar tie pin. Now, speaking of wearing things, part of her uh, reformulating her plan when she left Washington was to design another outfit for herself. It was kind of the dress for the job you want school of thought. The outfit she was wearing at this point was a military styled uniform It was her usual shorter dress with straight pants, but it had the look, the piping, the stripes down the pants of military officers. And she was wearing a green sash, which was a sign of any surgeon in the army. She just put it on because that's what she was. Her manner, her skill, her bravery and tenacity made commander after commander praise her via letter to the War Department. 
And when she got back, she gave a speech in Washington about her war experiences, and she shared a podium with Buffalo Bill Cody, by the way. Mm -hmm. There's a showman for you. And she made the papers. Since the commencement of the war, a slight girlish figure costumed in a bloomer dress of blue cloth has been constantly seen in the various hospitals of the capital, performing with great skill surgical operations, prescribing for the sick or soothing them with smiling words. And then as to her war work, she has won on the battlefield an acknowledged reputation for professional superiority. And then in that article, the reporter basically said, come on, War Department, how dare you not officially acknowledge that she exists? I think it helped a lot, actually, for her uh, notoriety that she was wearing such a recognizable costume. Mm -hmm. Although... You and I should still note that the, quote, short dress was still below her knees. Like, you and I wouldn't consider it a short dress. And she's also still wearing many, many pounds too much cloth for me and you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, and her hair, too. She didn't think the updos of the day was necessary. She wore her hair down and, you know, kind of tucked behind her ears to show that she was a woman. She never denied that she was a woman. That wasn't why she was wearing these clothes. She was wearing these clothes because they made sense to her. You know, it wasn't about her identity. It was about her comfort and it was about hygiene. I would like to tell you, and I don't know where in her story this is, but yes, her hair was in ringlets. There's a pretty famous picture of her with the, you know, the Civil War ringlets on either side of in front of your ears and everything. There was a time that she cut her curls and sold them to pay for some supplies for soldiers. So personal vanity went by the wayside when people were in need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, selling your boots, you probably have a spare pair of boots. Tearing up your nightgown, ah, eh, you got 19 petticoats on. But cutting your hair off to pay for supplies for someone, that's like a, that's, I mean, everyone can see her heart, I think. Mm-hmm. And the men that she treated pretty much fell in love with her. This little, slight woman, determined, unafraid, there for them. Just, I can't express how just powerful her presence was. Just seeing her tended to uplift people, knowing, oh, this is who's going to treat me. I've heard about this woman, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to be fine. My leg will be safe or, you know, whatever it was. I just think it was great. While she was in Washington, as if she didn't have enough to do, see, she has a child of her papa, she made sure that cases of jailed soldiers reached proper trials. She advised people. She argued for them. She wasn't a lawyer, but she was an advocate for them and made a lot of noise to the right people to pay attention to the perils of the soldiery. So that is just another sideline that where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Her sense of justice is where it came from. Also, the city was full of women looking for their relatives. And Dr. Walker looked around and realized there's not a lot of places for respectable women to have a home base in this town. So she began to give lectures and crowdfunded and contacted all the suffrage groups that she had been associated with. And within a week of starting this project, she had enough money to rent a house that was directly across from Ford's Theater, then famous just as a theater, (laughs) to house all these women. She called it the Women's Relief Association of 10th Street. And women could come and stay there. They could get social services. 
She was able to get more women's groups in the area involved, to get more hands in helping at this place. She stayed there for about a year before she turned the entire project over to somebody else to run. But she set up the first women's shelter in the city. And inspired the military to pony up for linen, for food, for transportation, and for PR. Yes. So not only that, she opened a second location. Now, here's the funny part. The military gratefully provided all those things. And the local women's groups provided the labor. And everyone thought, oh, this is the women's sphere. This is the proper function of women in war. I think that's a little irritating. Yeah. She tried every which way to be officially recognized for what the military considered unfeminine war work of hers, even to the point of writing a letter to the Secretary of War asking him to start her own regiment of men. Then she'd recruit them. Right. And she'd accompany them as a surgeon. You know, like if that's what it takes... You don't even have to worry about it. I'll provide my own soldiers for the whole thing. She wrote, having been so long the friend of soldiers and their friends, I feel confident I can be successful in getting an enlistment of men who would not enlist to any other person. I think we can all say it together. She was denied. Then, as you do, she wrote directly to President Abraham Lincoln, who, having been married to a strong, tiny woman himself, (laughs) um was receptive to her letter, but decided he did not want to go in this tense time against the military chain of command. He was not going to overrule them. Whatever they said was probably the right thing. He had some other stuff to do. Finally, some friends who knew her and her work pulled some strings. Okay, I bet if you take the, quote, traditional medical board exams with that certification They can't complain about that anymore, that you have the other kind of medical license. And then we're going to call in some favors and put some pressure on. So why don't you go ahead and get that certification and then we'll go. So she did. And part of this process was to sit with the medical board and answer their questions. I'm sorry to say that the exam was a complete farce. The committee members were out to fail her. They wouldn't let her finish her sentences. They looked at each other and laughed at correct answers. They tried to get her to describe in embarrassing detail in front of a boardroom full of men parts of the female anatomy and then told her she had no more skill than a housewife, which, you know, ironic, given the vast knowledge of herbs, first aid and nursing They came with being a wife and mother at this time. You know, they probably know more than you do. The official report had terms like medical monstrosity and negative comments about her, quote, hybrid costume. They did say that she knew enough to be trained as a nurse, but this is in her permanent record. So they failed her. They mocked her and failed her. And she threatened to report them to their boss. But her guys... Her guys already got to him first. Hooray for her guys. (laughs) Also, her reputation had gotten to that boss first. No need, ma'am. No need. I know. Never mind them. I know all about those guys and their nonsense. You're hired. 
you're now the first female surgeon in the U.S. Armed Forces. She was called a contract civilian surgeon, but had the rank of either, sources vary, a captain or a lieutenant. So when she said to do things, people had to do them. Hooray! That's good. Yeah. Well, she may have had the rank of these other men, but she certainly didn't have the pay. They paid her $80 a month versus what a male would get would be about $130. Yeah. Like. Well, as they said earlier, one pillar at a time. Mm-hmm. We will, yeah. We're here. We're official. We will handle the pay thing later. She was assigned to the 52nd Ohio, which was currently not in a state of violence, shall we say. So the commander there had a special behind-the-scenes mission for her. There had been battles. Oh, yes, there had been. And why don't you, the trained surgeon and lady person, treat Confederate civilians and listen, 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 just like mom in the front seat of the car, nurses and doctors are part of the machine. And sometimes people don't mind talking in front of parts of the machine. I have learned so much by driving my child around during the middle school and early high school years. No kidding. No kidding. It's the best seat in the house. <laughs> um, something else I guess I would equate that to would be uh, servants. Sometimes mm-hmm. people forget servants are humans with ears and eyes. And that's what happened. And so um, people let their guards down a little bit. And sometimes Dr. Walker went fully into Confederate territory by herself in the night, in which case she would leave, and I quote, leave her guns behind because she thought if she was apprehended on one of her missions of mercy, if she was unarmed, she could sell it better. Right. I mean, she's going into the woods in the night, which I wouldn't do now in this gear. Right. (laughs) AD 2022 (laughs) wouldn't do. Um, And she did during a war where there were known to be enemy combatants in the area and she left her guns behind on purpose. Mm -hmm. So she is brave. But she's out getting well known in Confederate territory because she's helping people. She later said, quote, there's no doubt that General McCook's kindness and my professional duties to these people caused a great many of them to abandon their allegiance to the Confederacy. So she thought she was changing minds. Well, and information that she was able to collect ultimately in one very prominent case, resulted in General Sherman altering one of his strategies that would have led to a Union defeat and many casualties. So you never know what you're going to hear in the back seat. No. <laughs> so for two full months, she continued to travel the area, first with the soldiers, and then, we were, like we were saying, alone. But on April 10th, 1864, she was captured. They looked at her clothes. They thought, there's no way that you are a doctor. You must be a spy. Yeah, I am sure not understanding 100% why. And this is the night she was caught. She was wearing her, you know, extended union blue uniform frock coat dress. Very uniform looking on a mission like this. If if she'd had a, I don't know. And, you know, we know her by now. She's not going to wear a dress mm-hmm. of calico or whatnot. But had she been wearing a traditional dress and had a bag full of medicaments, she could have sold it. Right. 
But as it was, they were really confused by the whole situation and didn't understand. She was seized and ultimately taken to one of the most notorious prisons in the Confederacy called Castle Thunder in Richmond, Virginia. I talked about these prisons in the last episode. Uh, Elizabeth Van Lu was visiting the Libby prison, and that was the prison that Dr. Walker was originally going to be sent to until someone realized there were no women prisoners in that prison. So she was sent to Castle Thunder Prison. Again, it's a tobacco processing plant that was turned into a, a prison, and this one was even worse than the Libby prison. The conditions were horrible. There was bed bugs in her mattress. There was rats everywhere. There was fleas all over the place. The treatment of prisoners was sadistic. I mean, there's there's no other way around that. There was extreme deprivation, violence, disease, demoralizing, spirit-breaking experiences were had by all. Um, the fact that Dr. Walker was a Lady doctor. <laughs> Lady doctor. That's hilarious. And then they called her a disgusting product of Yankee land. And they called her the doctoress and the philosopher and the ugly skinny spinster, which we know that's not true because of photography. But who cares? <laughs> Even if it was true, like whatever. Prisoner morale was often very bad. And Dr. Walker made a point of cheering for the prisoners that were on their walks. And I'm so proud of you. And don't give up. And we're all in this together. And we'll get out of this. And she had a little flag that she would wave. And she really helped a lot, even from her confinement. She also took a special care to write to her family about how they had good meals and everyone was treating her well and she had a lady companion and this and that, which was a total lie, but for a good reason. Mm. Now, I don't want people to think that she was just always this really strong, positive person. She was human. At one point, the brigadier general who ran the prison brought Dr. Walker into his office and gave her what is essentially a good talking to about what it meant to be a woman. And she just broke down in tears. It was, you know, fear, exhaustion. She didn't feel well. He thought it was because he had shown her the error of her ways. What a jerk. He later described her as, quote, the most personable and gentlemanly looking young woman I ever saw. She was of good birth and refinement as well as superior intellect. Okay, why is nobody else recognizing this? Well, uh, at last, she was released in a prisoner exchange. Unfortunately, right when she was admitted into Castle Thunder, there had been some problems with prisoner exchanges and they had stopped for a while, which meant that her stay there was longer than it might have been. Unfortunately, it took a while, but at last she was free. Lincoln himself invited her to the White House to tell him about her experiences. Northern papers praised her. And I will tell you in a glorious bit of irony, a year later, after the prison had been uh, occupied by the Union and the territory had been retaken, she read the Declaration of Independence a year later inside of the liberated prison as an invited guest. Yeah, there was a big ceremony and she was one of the people that was presenting. I, I, I just couldn't get it in my head how 
she was in one hand being held up as this model person, you know, and then on the other, she's continually being denied to do the thing that they say she's really good at. Gee, I wonder what it was. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, despite her horrific experiences, which really started to impact her health. Her eyesight began to fail, although it was not yet too terrible at this time. Her uh, deprivation and experiences had left her with some trauma and physical maladies. She was back in the saddle again. Oh my gosh. And she said, it is literally impossible for one with any force of character and humanity to remain in the background when convinced by knowledge and reason that their mission is evidently one that will result in great good for those who have not the power to gain it for themselves. So she's like, I'm still capable. I'm going to go back out there. She didn't get assigned a position where she was on the front or caring for soldiers. Where she was assigned was to Louisville, Kentucky, to a women's prison. Okay, it's a start. She was the contract surgeon for the Louisville Female Military Prison. Unfortunately, she was not welcomed there by the other people that were running this prison. She did make it for six months, six months of think of the worst corporate backbiting and sneakiness that you can imagine, telling people over her head that she was doing things she wasn't, having the prisoners write letters asking for her to be terminated. She just took six months of this shenanigans and had enough. She wanted to go back to the front. Where they sent her was still in Louisville to a children's orphanage. Well, those who witnessed her work in any capacity in person never forgot her. The public, though medium bewildered, I will say categorically (laughs) by her whole thing, you know, were very interested in her. Dr. Mary Walker was very famous during her lifetime, nearly forgotten now. I just want to say people at the time definitely knew who she was. Now, after the war, she was released from service kind of unceremoniously um, from all services. Goodbye. Farewell. Ovida Saint. Adieu. Never one to slouch. Our friend Dr. Walker also attended law school for a while so she could better help nurses receive pensions from the government after the war. She was very good at research and compared the nurses' jobs to fully paid men workers and then applied her trademark persistent activism about it. She was the squeaky wheel the squeaky wheel on behalf of others, and also increasingly trying to be the squeaky wheel on behalf of herself. She wanted to be recognized for the work that she had done. She still wanted some type of a commission. Her goal was to become a peacetime surgeon for the United States. Specifically, she wanted to be medical inspector to the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. 
You know what I love about her is that she picks out the exact job that she wants and she asks for it. She's, this isn't the first time she's done that. You know, any time in the past that she's asked for a commission, it's been something very specific, just like this one after the war. You know, she never got them, but she asked for the job that she wanted. Unfortunately, she didn't get this one either, but she really gave it a good try. She went right to the top. President Andrew Johnson, she sent an entire dossier of qualifications and recommendations and and her history during the Civil War, all these people saying glowing things about her. She just sent this huge pile of paperwork to the president and asked for this job saying, I've already done so much for this country. Let me keep doing more. President Johnson was so impressed by this dossier that he thought, well, you know, hmm, okay. He asked his secretary of war to look into the possibility of giving her a commission based on the information that she had sent him. The commissioner of war decided to punt and gave the assignment to General Joseph Holt. And he was supposed to look into the legalities and the whys and where to fours of whether or not to give her a commission. Now, this man came back with a report, and I want to quote part of it. Note how he refers to her, though. Interesting. Miss Walker's efforts, her imprisonment, her exposure to dangers and hardships, and her medical services to the sick and wounded made her almost isolated in the history of the rebellion. And then he said later in the document, in order to signalize and perpetuate this fact of her isolation, granting Miss Walker a commission based on her actions would seem appropriate. But then he also thought things were too fragile right after the war to be so radical and never referred to her once as Dr. Walker in the entirety of his paper. So he's like, mm, we're, I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence. I don't know what to do, <laughs> you know? And unfortunately, those ne'er-do-wells that gave her the false test, you remember them? Mm-hmm. All those chickens kind of came home to roost to tip the balance, unfortunately. And Mary wasn't going to take this laying down. She wrote again to the president with even more documentations on her achievements and an actual rebuttal to that board review where she said the examination was intended to be a farce. More than half of the time was consumed in questions regarding subjects that were exclusively feminine and had no sort of relation to the diseases and wounds of soldiers. Again, Johnson passed on it, though. But the president was frustrated a little bit and looked around for a way to recognize Dr. Walker's unique contribution to the war effort. And in November of 1865, he awarded the 33-year-old Dr. Mary Walker the Medal of Honor, which was in his gift. Whereas, by reason of her not being a commissioned officer in the military service, a brevet or honorary rank cannot, under existing laws, be conferred upon her. And, whereas, in the opinion of the president, an honorable recognition of her services and sufferings should be made, it is ordered. A testimonial thereof shall be hereby made and given to the said Dr. Mary E. Walker, and the usual Medal of Honor for Meritorious Services be given her. She received the Medal of Honor. 
And she was very honored. She pinned it right on her jacket, and that's where it stayed for the rest of her life. She was the first woman to be awarded the Medal of Honor and, as it turned out, the only woman to be awarded the Medal of Honor even now in the year 2022 A.D. There's over 3,500 people who have been given this award, and she is the only woman. And we've had women in the military for a very long time. Now, the reason for such omissions might be clear a little later when we explain how the rules changed. Um, And speaking of rules, what happened to her almost immediately after she received the Medal of Honor is that she was arrested for her outfit on the streets of New York City. She was in New York City in a shop, and she was attracting quite a crowd of people around her. The shopkeeper called the police and had her escorted out of the shop and to the police station. When they asked her her name, she just pointed to her medal and said, you can read it here, you know, on my Congressional Medal of Honor. They were arresting (laughs) her. So uh, not only was she arrested for her outfit once, she was arrested less than a week later for the same purpose. See, she'd walk around and gather a mob, and rather than disperse the mob, the police said she was the cause of the mob and would take her in. Now, maybe America was not quite ready for her. She had to make some money now that she was no longer really able to practice medicine, and obviously the commission in the military was not going to happen. So what else is she good at? She's good at public speaking and arguing and formulating her opinions. And so she decided to sort of peace out of America and go over to England. She hoped to inspire other women to go into the medical field, which, by the way, spoiler alert, actually worked, worked great. Then, after her great success in England, she came back to do a U.S. speaking tour, which got her arrested again for her outfit here in Kansas City. I know. (laughs) I read that. I was like, oh, no, not in Kansas City. They're arresting her for wearing men's clothing. And her argument this entire time is this isn't men's clothes. This is my clothes. And I am a woman. So these are, therefore women's clothes. What's the problem? She had said, I wish it understood that I wear this style of dress from the highest, the purest, and the noblest principles. You know, she wasn't doing it to get attention. She was doing it because it was her clothes. Well, and the, you know, just after the war clothes, I swear to you, I wish I could transmit this picture straight to your mind right now. If you were to see the outfit she wore prior to, say, 18... 72 or so, there is no one on this modern earth that would be in any way convinced these were men's clothes. Mm -hmm. Like there's no confusion at all. She basically has a knee-length dress with some pipes sticking out the bottom. Right. (laughs) The end. There's nothing more alarming than that. But somehow people just couldn't deal with it. So she spent her time writing a book called Hit, a collection of essays on women's rights, and simultaneously joined the women's suffrage movement that had been launched so many years ago when she was in high school in New York. Now, our old friends, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, 
uh, and many other, you know, main characters of the movement really resented her involvement, I'm sorry to say. Unwomanly behavior, they called it, and her clothes just gave the opposition more ammunition. And she said, no matter what length of skirt I wear, somebody considered it his or her Christian duty to tell me I ought to wear some other length. There's just no winning. Mobs would sometimes follow her. You know, she was often taken into custody to save her from the violence of the crowds around her. Well, she began out of sort of self-defense at about this time, simply to wear men's clothes Mm -hmm. fully, uh, including famously a top hat, which separated her even further from the women's movement. You know how men's shirt collars on the inside, there's like a layer of fabric. She's credited with creating that so that it wouldn't, irritate her. The collar and the buttons wouldn't irritate her neck. And it was adapted into men's clothing. So let's think about that for a second. Does that mean that men are wearing women's clothing? Ah, I don't know. And gentlemen, people of the world, Susan Vollenweider has created a revelation. (laughs) Well, um, she became friends with one of our previous subjects, a woman by the name of Belva Lockwood. Uh, You might recall from that episode, Belva Lockwood, the second woman who ever ran for president in the United States. Well, Mary and Belva decided that they would fill out applications to vote and go down and see if they could, based on the fact that the Constitution didn't specify, you know, that ladies weren't people, that they were people and they were going to go down and register to vote. And she said, gentlemen, these women have assembled to exercise the right of citizens of a professed to be Republican country. And if you debar them of the right to register, you add new proof that this is a tyrannical government sustained by force and not justice. As long as you tax women and then deprive them of the right of franchise, that means to vote, you make yourself tyrants. You imprison women for crimes you have forbidden women to legislate upon. So no taxation without representation. If you're going to take taxes from women, then they need representation. That's how it goes, brother man. They even brought bouquets to these men. Like, see, we're a lady person. Here you go. (laughs) And of course, the men are like, if you're willing to swear that your men will let you register. And they're like, that's not, uh, no. You're missing the point, right? Here in the 14th Amendment, you know, it says basically that if you're born in the United States and you're over the age of 21, you are an American citizen and you can vote. This whole thing has a name. It's called the New Departure Strategy. And the suffragists did take it on for a while, Dr. Walker took it on for the rest of her life. The suffragists said the way to get women the vote is through a act of Congress, through an amendment to the Constitution, whereas Mary and this new departure strategy said, no, it's already in there. We already have it in the Constitution. What are you talking about? So that's one of the splintering moments between Dr. Walker and the suffragists. Yes, Mary Walker had a very contentious relationship with, in particular, the National Women's Suffrage Association. Mary, who got them a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. was ruthlessly cut out of speaking at their events, despite, um, you know, she's an OG, you know, Mm -hmm. and people are kind of... (sighs) 
she basically had a poisoned relationship with mainstream, I guess I'll say, women's rights activists from now on, you know, based on that strategy. They wanted that ni- that amendment. It turned out to be the 19th Amendment, but they thought it was going to be the 15th Amendment. Merry Christmas. It was not. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state in which they reside. She's like, that couldn't be more clear. I'm a person and therefore I'm a citizen and therefore I vote. The end. We don't have to discuss this anymore. She said, we do not beg, ladies. We do not beg. We demand. This right exists. They must give it to us. And they're like, no, but what if we just... And she's like, no. And so it was just a nightmare from then on. It was like, we're going to ask. No, we're going to demand. But I think I can say that our old friends, Elizabeth, Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, I'm sorry to say we're sort of bullies. And I know that people that are stubborn and outspoken and have their minds made up and won't listen to anything you have to say are annoying. (laughs) Yes. However... Partially, it was also because of her habit of dress. Remember, we talked about how quickly the sort of established women's rights activists ditched the bloomer suit, the rational dress thing. I mean, Elizabeth Cady Stanton herself said that the physical freedom that she enjoyed with this costume did not compensate for the persecution and annoyances that she suffered by wearing it. And she felt like it detracted from the mission. So she abandoned it quickly and went back into dresses. But And it also could be Dr. Walker herself had no trouble, how shall I say, slagging off the women's movement to reporters. And I quote, from a published newspaper article, there are some grafters and notoriety seekers in the women's suffrage movement. The manner in which the campaign is being conducted is pretty near a farce at this point. Oh, my God. <laughs> so are you going to have her speak at your event? No. Are you going to refund her dues and drop her from your roles? Yes, you are. <laughs> that happened to her. The National Women's Suffrage Association. They did exactly that. They also, in addition to paying her money back, they paid her back in their multi-volume book of the history of women's suffrage. They largely left her out. They mentioned her clothing, but largely minimized her importance in the movement. They also, she wasn't alone, left out Lucy Stone for the most part and Alice Paul. People that they disagreed with along the way got minimized Mm -hmm. because in the future, people reading this book wouldn't see your name or would only see your name mentioned here and there as someone who had spoken the end. Right. Most activists of color were out entirely. Um, Later, a group of suffragists presented Mary Walker's argument that the Constitution already allowed women the vote without giving her credit or mentioning her advocacy for this in any way. Now, remember, people in the audience still chanted her name. She was still able to fill an auditorium for her lectures. Dr. Mary Walker was well-known and recognizable in her own time. People lined up in the hundreds to get her autograph. I just want to make very clear that the women's suffrage movement was like, please don't come. We weren't going to let you in the door. Don't get on this podium. Don't speak. Nevertheless, people in the free world of all kinds were so excited to meet her. So, you know, make of that what you will. I will tell you, though, Dr. Mary Walker was well known in her own time 
if you were to look it up, unless one of you wants to edit it, please do. She's not even on the Wikipedia list of women's rights activists in the United States. Seriously? As of today. Oh. And I'm not going to edit it. I'm not. No. Anybody can edit the Wikipedia. And I know for a fact that there are people who listen to us that do just that. I'm just saying I'm not going to edit it because I kind of want that evidence to be out there for a minute (laughs) while this is going out. Somebody take a screen grab before you do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just take a screen grab before you do. Now, I will say it's a little relieving that Ida Wells and Sojourner Truth both made it. So that's good. Yeah. Well, basically, at least outwardly, Dr. Mary Walker's opinion was like, I don't care. It's nonsense. You're going about this all wrong and whatever. And she moved on to a different strategy. She's so smart. She decided to start giving speeches at what was called dime museums. Now, I talked about the dime museums before when I talked about the tattooed ladies, weirdly. Mm -hmm. This is where she is going to get a hold of the middle class. It's an affordable, accessible place where there was variety. I mean, there's entertainment and education. And she said there's more of the middle class than there is of anybody else during this period in history. And I'm going to go where their minds are and try to change the most minds that I can. And even though it was too déclassé, perhaps, for the Elizabeth Cady Stantons and Susan B. Anthony's of this world, her point was, practically speaking, there's more of them. So that's where she decided to go. And that's where she was spending her time. It was viewed as if it was a step down. I mean, if a lot of books that you're going to read about her, her doing this is like she's just dropping out of popularity. But it was a strategy. One newspaper that had um, a headline, Dr. Mary Walker, From Platform of Princes to the Stage of Freaks. You know, it's like, like, you know, um, Ario Speedwagon playing the Minnesota State Fair or something, you know, it's like, no, they're still playing. Don't you, you have to look at it differently. And she's R-E-O reaching. R.E.O. Speedwagon. <laughs> I just, I, was just... I don't even know R.E.O. Speedwagon. <laughs> oh, I think we got to reach totally down a bit. Deeded myself. Dang it. <laughs> You just have to look at it differently. It's like, wow, you people will still come out to see you play. And you're doing this thing you love. Incidentally, I will tell you, I uh, blew over a pretty major, often forgotten scenario. Dr. Mary Walker actually submitted herself as a candidate for the Democratic Senate seat in New York in 1881. Her platform included things that you and I, I think, totally agree with. There should be no annexation of Hawaii. Uh, We should not be present in the Philippines. We should not be purchasing Alaska. I mean, in retrospect, when you know the history of this, it's like, yeah, (laughs) what's wrong with you? Unfortunately, the Democrats of the time did not agree with her and did not put her on the ballot. So in... Let's go. I mean, the 80s were full of dime museums, advocacy, writing. I mean, she was very busy. But a notable event in March of 1889, while testifying for women's rights at the United States House of Representatives, like you do, Dr. Walker walked up the flight of stairs to the Speaker of the House's desk and proclaimed to the people in the room, 
It will not be long before the Speaker of the House is a woman. Dr. Walker was the very first woman to speak from the official Speaker's desk, which is a milestone, but she was unfortunately very wrong about the last part. (laughs) The part about it won't be long before the Speaker of the House is a woman because the first woman Speaker of the House was... Of course, Nancy Pelosi in 2007, which was not very soon after she had given that speech. No. And at about the same time, she's saying that women will have the vote within 10 years. Well, not exactly. (laughs) She was just so forward thinking, right? Right. (laughs) Well, she wrote an article called Why Women Should Wear Trousers and... It led to a conversation with Bertha Palmer, organizer of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. You knew it had to happen. (laughs) You knew it had to happen. Led with, uh, you know, so she thought, hello, Mrs. Palmer, I think I should be in charge of a costume exhibition at the fair. And Bertha Palmer thought that is a good idea. And fashions were, in fact, slowly creeping toward the practicality spectrum. Shirtwaists had come in. A very obvious top shirt and bottom skirt had come in. Things were going slowly but surely. Bicycle outfits were coming in vogue. Unfortunately, they didn't share this exhibit with Dr. Walker, but Dr. Walker was an invited and very welcome guest, honored guest. And she actually had been known to say at the exhibition, I'm the original new woman. I have paved the way for the bicycle girl's knickerbockers. (laughs) Which I love her confidence. I think we could all take a little bit of that for ourselves. She's still petitioning Congress for a pension to be recognized for her work this entire time. Like over 25 times she's written pleading her case. Right in the middle here, she also, you know, this is, is this New England and New York? What is up? What is up with these people? This is the era of utopias. And I think she just wanted to get in on it. She thought she had a better plan than anyone else. And drew up plans for her own utopia, which was to be populated by only women. Unmarried women at that. Yes, but she wasn't against marriage. Where do you expect that these monsters you're turning out with, you know, strong minds and strong bodies are going to end up? And she said, most of them will end up in marriage and can bring up their families in a rational manner. She wasn't against marriage. She wasn't you know, in the man-hating club or whatever, but she's just like, I need to give people more opportunities to understand that they're people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it never really got off the ground. And I'm sorry to say that she was pretty relentlessly mocked for even having this idea. She was pretty ahead of her time, I think. Uh, maybe born in the wrong time. Speaking of being declined for things, she applied for membership with the Daughters of American Revolution Now, she was a relative of a Revolutionary War vet. Her great-great-grandfather had fought in the Revolutionary War. She was declined membership of the New York chapter because they said it's a women's organization. And you, Dr. Walker, have spent your life fighting against women's traditional and preferred dress. So they didn't admit her. They did admit her in St. Louis, however, so she was a member of the DAR. You know, it's so amazing to me, looking back on her life, Mm -hmm. even just to this point, 
the stupid pants are the boss of her life. People could not get over the pants. Right. It just kills me. And it's not even the whole pants for most of her life. Mm -mm. It's just like a foot of pants. No. Even and people can't handle the pants. No, <laughs> you know British people. I'm telling you, it means trousers. It doesn't mean underwear. I have to tell you, I normally wear in the summertime. It's summertime now. Um, sundresses or dresses every day. I just feel comfortable in them, just like Mary felt comfortable in her pants. But today, right now, I am wearing. Well, they're short pants, but <laughs> they're pants because I was getting dressed this morning, and I was like, I need to wear pants. I need to wear pants for Mary. Because I can, because she paved the way for this pair of khaki shorts. <laughs> so I, the other day, I had on this black, um, like, jersey nightgown tank dress, and <laughs> I was needing to run outside. I was, it was a nightgown, you know, and I needed to run outside, and I threw some black jeans on under, and I ran out to take, you know how you hear the trash guy coming? Yes, I do. I swear to you, does anyone on this earth ever have a trash guy come Except for at 7.01 a.m. <laughs> Somebody must get their trash picked up later, but it has never been me in my entire adult life. <laughs> so I'm running out there. And then as I came in, I literally saw myself. We have a full length mirror that is part of the house that goes to the basement door and it's across from the front door. And I came in and I saw what I was wearing and I thought, well, that's an homage. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that outfit on you. <laughs> I was going to have Chris take a picture and then he rolled his eyes and left. Oh. I don't think he approved. And I didn't fully explain myself either. He just thought, what is happening? Mary wants me to wear this. Don't you get it, Chris? Take a picture. But alas, well, anyway, moving on from that, some years later, not very many years later, Dr. Walker's brilliant mind and fluent pen came to the defense in an extremely odd pairing, a defense of Queen Liliuokalani of Hawaii, robbed the year of the Chicago World's Fair of her kingdom. Please listen to episode 96 for more on Queen Liliuokalani. Dr. Walker wrote that it was against every value America purported to stand for. Um, American businessmen had leveraged dollars and political interests to basically incite a coup and installed an American-backed oligarchy in Hawaii. Dr. Walker said it was an annihilation of the founding principles of our dear and glorious republic by criminally receiving backdoor stolen goods in the form of Hawaii. She met with Queen Liliuokalani, although the content of their conversation is not recorded. She also had an anti-annexation lecture to which she invited the entire Congress and not one of them came, although other people came. Um, despite their special invitations, they stayed away. And finally, she sent her legal and moral objections in a letter that was actually published in the Washington Post. Her opposition to the annexation actually got her kicked out of the gallery of the Senate, forcibly kicked out. She was such a staunch advocate for poor old Hawaii for all the good it did. She wasn't ever afraid to be loud. You know, she's getting kicked out of all these places. She doesn't care. She's actually joining Carrie Nation and her uh, merry band of violent demonstrators to a degree because she's also, in addition to talking about the dress and suffrage, she is very much a proponent of temperance, both tobacco and alcohol. And that actually goes way back to her upbringing. Her parents were exactly the same way. 
alcohol and um, tobacco are not only physically bad for you, they're bad for society. I think a lot of um, a lot of abolitionists, temperance advocates and women's rights advocates were all kind of blended together. Mm -hmm. Um, Not all, of course, but it was uh, all these movements kind of grew up together. Right. Well, uh, similarly, she was vocal about her opposition to the Spanish-American War. She was anti-Panama Canal because she thought that the territory that Panama let them use was obtained by devious means. She had some words for President Teddy Roosevelt. And I am like, in a male senator, this behavior would have been admirable. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm, like, mm-hmm. so wide ranging of experience, so much depth of knowledge, so much passion. But since it was her, mm-hmm. it was like the sound of crickets. Her suffrage work, though, never, ever ended. And this is sort of bad. I feel bad that she said this or had this sentiment, but the two OGs of women's suffrage um, had died. First Elizabeth Cady Stanton and then Susan B. Anthony. And Dr. Walker actually said for real that if those two had died decades ago, women would already have the vote. They just wanted to be in the public eye and that's why no progress was made. Ouch. Aye, aye. <laughs> well, okay. Let me just say, I don't know if you've noticed this, <laughs> but as we age, our filter gets thinner and thinner. So um, I had a friend recently, just this week, she said, I turned 50 and suddenly I don't care anymore. It's coming out. I'm like, yeah. So for Mary, who had a very thin filter the entire life, you know, now it's getting even thinner. So she's it comes in her head. She believes it. She says it. Walks on like that cat walking away from the explosion. <laughs> well, I have to say the new generation, I think maybe like admiration for sass skips a generation. You know, the generation right below her was a little conservative, like, oh, I don't know about this. But then, you know, the Gen Z of her time started to give her praise for her work. And of course, society had caught up with her mm-hmm. a little bit. And she started to get praise for her suffrage work and for her dress reform work. Over in France, designer Paul Poiret revealed his jupe culotte, which looked a lot like the outfit she'd been wearing her whole life. I mean, made of silk and on a much taller person, et cetera. But, <laughs> you know, like Lady Sybil's outfit in that one scene where everyone was so shocked, you know, avant-garde, probably. I don't know that everyone on the street is wearing it, but nevertheless, we're getting there. So they started to treat her like an elder statesman of the movement, kind of, I don't want to say mascot-like, but she was more of a um, figurehead than an active, welcomed member of the movement. Mm -hmm. But people were very excited to still meet her and invite her to things that she hadn't been invited before. In 1913, Illinois allowed women to vote in certain elections, and she went there for the celebration. In 1915, one of the largest women's suffrage marches, 500,000 women in the world, happened. And she participated in that as a welcomed and honored guest. Um, Many a man that she helped on the battlefield had to put his handkerchief to his eyes after seeing her again. Mm. Like she was beloved, Mm -hmm. you know. And as World War I began, the Great War, as they called it, 
Dr. Mary Walker's Civil War work was pointed to as one example of how women could break traditional ways of behaving and take up jobs that traditionally had been held by men. And this is what they could do to further the war effort. What a change. She fully intended to work with these young ladies and the new soldiers with the Red Cross at 83 years of age. But a horrible tumble on the steps of the Capitol building, ironic, sent her to the hospital with a number of broken bones. The universe said no. And then the federal government said no. The board that was in charge of the Congressional Medal of Honor decided to change their qualifications. There was too many people that hadn't seen any battles that were getting this award, and they decided that unless you had actually been in combat, you were disqualified from getting the Medal of Honor. And they went on to say faced an enemy in combat. So... It wasn't just going forward, we're going to do this. They went and made it retroactive. And Mary, along with 910 other award recipients, were essentially stripped of their medals. Somewhere along the way, they had redesigned this medal and sent her a new one. So now she's wearing two medals of honor on her garments, and they wanted them back. She was not about that. She's like, nope, they're going to stay right where they are. I mean, why would she send them back? She's had them for 40 years. So, you know, whistle for that, my lads. You're not getting it back. Her health began to fail when she was 86. And after a brief stay in the hospital, she returned to her old childhood home. And her Civil War friends and acquaintances all over the country banded together to raise funds for her to have a live-in nurse and a housekeeper, and Dr. Walker kept up a lively and argumentative correspondence with people all over the world up until the end. And that end happened on February 22nd, 1919, when 86-year-old Dr. Mary Edwards Walker died at her Oswego home. The funeral was held per her instructions. She wanted to be buried in her black outfit, the outfits that she's been wearing for years, and she wanted an American flag draped over her coffin. She's buried near her parents at the Oswego Rural Union Cemetery, and now there is a Civil War plaque on her headstone. I am intrigued by a paragraph from one of the obituaries written by another woman doctor of the time, a doctor who had admired her work and had um, not exactly modeled her own life after Dr. Walker, but had been inspired to study medicine by looking at her example. As people were inspired uh, all over England and all over America, and I just want to read this tribute to you. Dr. Mary's life should stand out to remind us that when people do not think as we do, do not dress as we do, and do not behave as we do, that they are more than likely to be a half century ahead of their time. And we should have for these people not ridicule, but reverence. Hmm. I think that's very astute because I came to that conclusion a little bit earlier. I'm like, you dragged everyone into the modern era. Right, right, right. And you know what? The writer of that obituary was almost right. Because in 1977, which is not 50 years, but 60 some years, President Jimmy Carter reinstated Dr. Mary Walker's Medal of Honor for her services during the Civil War. 
Dr. Walker's enthusiasm and her determination to get a project completed was clearly passed down in the generations because before Jimmy Carter could sign the declaration reinstating her Medal of Honor, Dr. Walker's great-great-grandniece, Ann Walker, was the force behind it getting on his desk. She said that, quote, Dr. Mary lost the medal because she was 100 years ahead of her time and no one could stomach it. That was, I mean, that is a relation, right? Yes. <laughs> Dr. Mary Walker is still the only female recipient of the Medal of Honor, even now in the year 2022 AD. And I'm sorry to say that she missed the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote, but it might have been. Okay. <laughs> because as far as she was concerned, they had the right to vote all along and an amendment wasn't necessary. So she might have actually not been happy about that amendment passing, although she certainly would have loved to be able to vote. I think so. And now it's time for media and we will start with books. Um, I would say there are three biographies that rose to the top. There's well, for one, A Woman of Honor, Dr. Mary Walker and the Civil War by Mercedes Greff is going to be made into a movie. So mentioning that one first, I do not know how fast one makes a movie. But as <laughs> late recently, I don't know what to say, as 2021, there was a producer attached to it and a um, script was in development. So I don't know what that means in the vast scheme of movie-making madness, how many years, months, days that takes, <laughs> but there you go. That book is going to be made into a movie. And then I loved this book, um, Mary E. Walker, America's Only Female Medal of Honor Recipient by Amar Habib. And getting this other one out. Oh, these poor books have so many pages turned down. Don't look. And then Dr. Mary Walker's Civil War by Teresa Kamensky, One Woman's Journey to the Medal of Honor and the Fight for Women's Rights, in which you can see a picture of her with her ringlets. Mm -hmm. You know what I liked about that one? That was like the last book that I read. And normally I'm like a linear biography gal, but this one wasn't. And I really liked it. So, yeah. There is actually a very short book that I got my hands on. I listened to it when I was walking from Audible. It's Mary Edwards Walker, Above and Beyond by Dale L. Walker. And it's a very good short overview of her life. He does take some detours to other characters that were in her story. I liked it. There are a lot of kids' picture books. The one that I thought was the cutest was Mary Walker Wears the Pants, The True Story of the Doctor, Reformer, and Civil War Hero by Cheryl Harness, illustrated by Carlo Molinari. I thought it was a good book for one of those, you know, like when you're reading a book to a kid, you're like, can you see the boy that's really shocked? Can you find him in this picture? You know, when you do that, mm -hmm. there's a lot of that that you can do with this, the illustrations in this book, which I like. There are compilation books that include her, but the one I really, really, really want to mention, it's called Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do S-H asterisk asterisk. They weren't supposed to by Tracy Dawson, illustrated by <laughs> Tina. It's like it took you a while to figure out what that I was trying not to swim because you said PH, I thought. So I was like, PH? What bad word starts with PH? Asterix, extra, extra, extra. Am I not even saying that word right? 
Asterix. No, just say star, star. Oh, star, star. S H star, star. <laughs> Actually, say asterisk. Asterix. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. That was hilarious. Okay. Just like in the title, there's a lot of cussing in this book, but it's very conversationally written. And it was just a delight to read it. it had like people we know, Joan of Arc, Hatshepsut, Hannah Snell, who we have not covered, Anne Bonnie, Mary Reed. There was a lot in there. I loved this book. It was delightful. There is a magazine article that I encountered accidentally while I was researching uh, Dr. Walker about, now this is a little bit later, like toward the end of her life, this phenomenon was happening where wealthy, wealthy women from the Gilded Age era, you know, Titanic-ish era, would move to South Dakota and serve out their sentences in luxury in a hotel whose clientele was almost exclusively extraordinarily wealthy women waiting for their divorces to come through. <laughs> so that was very interesting. So evidently the legalities of residency were ironed out by that time. And I thought, what are the chances? And then I found something amazing, amazing by accident. It is called the DuPont Cavalcade of America, which started out as a radio drama um, and moved on in a couple of years to the TV era in the 19, let's see, 1953 is I think when it moved to television. But before that, it was a radio show. And what it is, is a 20 to 30 minute radio drama about either a person in history or a moment in history or a fact of history. And it is amazing. Although I will say everybody has that Catherine Hepburn accent. <laughs> you know, Can like you do it. Oh, uh, well, okay. So there's, there is an episode called A Medal for Miss Walker from 1952, which means radio to me. And she's like, a woman doctor. Does that shock you? No. Displease you? No. Then let's not waste any more time. You know, it's very like, ah, ah my girl Friday. A.O. I mean, it's so, it cracks me up. Everybody, I think theater teachers just told you to talk like that. So anyway, in that, I mean, there's like a thousand episodes for real. Um, and you can listen to them all at archive.org under Cavalcade of America. And I can give you a link to the actual medal for Miss Walker, but there's also Jane Adams, Anne Sullivan Macy, Florence Nightingale, Annie Oakley, Josephine Baker, Pocahontas is in there, although they list her as Powhatan's daughter, but mm, whatever, 1950s. And then just infinite amounts of other things, including the history of dance music for example. I mean, you can find anything you want here. Famous battles, famous writers. I, it's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, I can't wait. And they're all really that. short. And they do that whole do, 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 do with like orchestral oh, yeah. intro music, you know, that lasts long. And then there's a little DuPont is the company of the future. And so <laughs> you got to get over that. But yeah, DuPont paid for it. So I suppose they felt like putting in a ad was yeah, well, appropriate. Well, yeah. Why not? <laughs> Gee, I didn't find anything that exciting. I have a nice article on reform dress, <laughs> the history of it. That's really good. <laughs> I know. It, and also you have, uh, she was on a stamp. In 1982, to commemorate the 150th year of her birth, 
Dr. Mary was on a U.S. postage stamp. And in 2000, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And I will link you to the National Women's Hall of Fame because it looks lovely. It's up in uh, by Seneca Falls. And maybe, I don't know if they take um, suggestions from the public, but maybe Dr. Mary Walker needs to be a suggestion for the next round of quarters. Oh, yes. Wouldn't that be cool if we could make that happen? It would be. So we are going to research if we can submit names. And if we can, let's Mm -hmm. start a campaign. The town of Oswego, New York, in 2012, installed a statue of Dr. Mary in front of their town hall. She's standing next to a lectern, and on the lectern is one of her quotes. I have got to die before people will know who I am and what I have done. It's a shame that people who lead reforms in this world are not appreciated until after they're dead. Then the world pays its tributes. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell your friends about us or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Check out our Pinterest boards for rabbit hole after rabbit hole about each and every subject that we have ever covered, including Dr. Mary Walker. I am so behind on Instagram, so behind. I think the last time I posted there, it was during the Elizabeth Taylor podcast. Mm. I got caught up in the whole prep for London, etc. So pardon my lateness. I will work to get that. We're updated. That is out of control. But speaking of Instagram, if you've gone anywhere of historical interest during this summer, you can post it with the History Chicks field trip hashtag and we will follow along with your journey. We're about to head out on a field trip of our own to Boston, to Newport and to Concord, Massachusetts. There's some serious American history and history chick subjects along the route and more exciting news. We do believe percolating in the background are further trips to London and Paris. More on that later as our plans crystallize. The song in the middle is Brave by Crystal Kovac and the song at the end is Heavy Times by Monte Cassino. I don't have the right to deny you Anytime you want, you can be you Yeah, when you get to where you can hear me I hope that you hold these words dearly Yeah, we
Come around. 